us, the comfort that we have in the gospel, and that we would be free in extending that grace and comfort to each other, that your church would be built up, your witness here in Elgin would grow, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. We ask this all in his name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 5 through 11. Uh, it's on page 964 if you're using the Pew Bible, 964 in the Pew Bible. We'll be looking at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. I'm going to open my reading it for us in its entirety, but I do encourage you to take your time turning there and then to leave your Bible open as we work through this text together. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This morning and next week, we are returning to our intermittent sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you're just joining us, we're actually preaching our regular series through Ecclesiastes. But whenever schedule dictates that Paul will not be preaching, we like to have our other sermons have a consistency too. So we usually run a parallel series. That's through 2 Corinthians, our supplemental sermon series. And so we're jumping back in uh, to the middle of this book. The title for our sermon this morning is Outwitted by Satan. Although maybe, as we'll see in the course of the sermon, maybe a better title would be Cheated by Satan, Robbed by Satan. No one likes to be cheated. I don't like to be cheated. You don't like to be cheated. No one likes to be robbed. No one wants to have something of theirs taken unjustly. Yet many of us are dangerously close to allowing Satan to do just that. Satan's real. There is a spirit being who does not have the same limitations that you and I have, who's intelligent and powerful, and he is prowling around, and he wants to rob you. He wants to take something from you. We have an opening. We have a, a blind spot, an entryway for the enemy to take advantage of us, to rob us. Only what Satan wants to steal is far more precious than the things that we are usually so jealous to guard. Now, it's been a while since our last time in the book, so we'll, we'll recap the situation that we find ourselves in in 2 Corinthians, just very briefly. Paul is writing, if, if, if you read it recently, Paul's writing a very emotional letter to the Corinthians. On the one hand, he is overjoyed at their repentance. Right? You, you remember the historical background. The church had been by, plagued by some troublemakers. They were slandering Paul. They were opposing the gospel ministry. And on his current journey, Paul had initially planned to make two trips to the Corinthians. He was going to stop by, visit them once. He was going to go do some other things. Then he was going to visit them again. But his first visit was so painful, so difficult, that Paul ended up changing plans and not making that second trip. 
That first trip was painful largely because the church was indifferent to the serious dangers of the dissensions that were growing. They were not being vigilant at all regarding the false leaders and teachers and their ministry. There was even an individual member within the Corinthian church that directly opposed Paul, cast their lot in with the false teachers, probably trying to start an anti-Paul coalition, or maybe he had already started and was leading one, trying to draw the church into a very dangerous and destructive path. And Paul tried to correct and help the church in person, but he was largely rejected. Didn't go well. And so he left, and then instead of returning as he had planned, he wrote what he calls his severe letter. Now, we don't have that letter, but we can glean from what he says about it that Paul forcefully and extensively addressed the error and sins that the Corinthians were falling into. He called them to repent. They needed to reject the false teachers. They needed to address the offending member within their church. And they needed to get back to a faithful gospel ministry. And by God's grace, they did. God worked through that letter. They responded. They affirmed their commitment to Jesus and to Paul's ministry. They rejected the false teachers. And they disciplined the one within the church who was causing the problems. Hence, all of Paul's joy in the opening of this letter. Now, of course, life didn't suddenly become perfect for the 2 Corinthians. They weren't freed from all their sins, and there were still false teachers about, still grumblers. And so while Paul writes 2 Corinthians partly to express his joy over their repentance and to reaffirm them in Jesus, he also writes to further warn them to address the continued attacks from the false teachers And as we saw last time we were in the book, one of the particular charges that the false teachers were leveling at Paul was they were claiming that he was fickle, he was political, he wasn't really a man of his word, he wasn't a sincere minister. And they cited as evidence his stated intention to visit them twice, and then he didn't, right? He he abandoned the plan. And last time we saw how Paul responded to that particular charge. Paul said, I wasn't being fickle. Paul wasn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He wasn't being insincere when he made his initial plans and then changed them. In fact, Paul argued he was actually being consistent. He was being steadfast because he pointed out he made his original plans in order to encourage the Corinthians, encourage them in their faith in Jesus. He wanted to be a means of sharing the grace of Christ with them. And so he changed plans when he saw that his original plans wouldn't be best for encouraging the Corinthians in their faith in Jesus. So Paul's original plans and his change of plans were both made on the same basis. They were both made for gospel purposes. Paul wanted to be a vehicle of grace for the vehicle of grace of Jesus to be shared with the Corinthians. So Paul said, I was actually being consistent. I was wanting to do what was best for you in Christ. He had said he would come no, he would come, and then he said, no, I won't. But Paul wasn't saying yes, yes, and no, no, as his detractors charged. His only real word to them was yes, because serving them in the gospel meant drawing them to Christ, and all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Paul wanted to do what would best draw them to Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes. So Paul said no to them in order to serve God's bigger yes to them. Every good thing God plans to do for his people, he does in and through Jesus Christ. And so Paul wanted to do whatever he could to help them grow closer to Jesus so that he could experience all those yeses all the more. 
So when one plan looked like it wouldn't do that, he changed gears to serve them in Jesus. As we see throughout the whole letter, Paul is singularly animated by the reality of the gospel. Jesus and his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, it permeates all the arguments, all the logic, all the choices that Paul makes in this letter. He lives every second for the prospect of eternal reward with his Lord. He delights in being counted righteous before God and Jesus. He is sustained looking to the resurrection from the dead because of the eternal life that he has in Jesus. Remember, the gospel hope provided comfort for Paul that could not be taken away, as he said at the beginning of the book. That comfort stayed with him through all his trials and tribulations. And so Paul was driven to live in light of the gospel. He wanted every aspect of his life, every decision, every action, every thought to be informed by those truths about Jesus. And so live in such a way that outsiders might be encouraged to also believe. And so that believers that he served might grow in the understanding. And so join him in living better for Jesus. And so Paul, animated by the comfort that comes from the gospel and desiring to share that comfort with others, explains his reasoning for his decisions. And now in our text, he transitions to addressing more of the aftermath of his painful visit in that severe letter. Our text today describes a particular situation of discipline and the response that Paul wants the Corinthians to have to that situation, along with some purposes for why Paul calls for this exact response. So we're going to do four things this morning. We're going to do four things this morning to work through the text. We're going to look and see what is the situation that Paul is writing to. What's going on? What is Paul addressing? Consider what the response that Paul is calling the Corinthians to, along with some grouds that kind of provide the context for why Paul urges that response. And then thirdly, we will consider two purposes that Paul aims at in urging this particular response. And then finally, we'll make some applications to our own life together in Christ. So in the verses, we'll get right into the situation, right into the situation that Paul is addressing. In the verses right before our passage, Paul had been talking about not wanting to cause pain or, or be pained. And he uses that key word to make a transition. So look again at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Here's what happened. Someone has caused pain. They have grieved all of you, the Corinthian church. You have been grieved. Now, when Paul opens by using the word if and by saying he has not caused pain to me, he isn't being noncommittal and he isn't speaking of a hypothetical. This is a real case. And he isn't saying nothing was done to him. Right? He's, not, he's not saying, look, it's no skin off my bones, but you guys have been pained. Right? Paul's writing verse 5 precisely because Paul was, at least on the surface, by first appearances, the most primary and obviously wronged party in the whole situation. The person in question had been slandering Paul, opposing Paul's ministry. So when Paul says, he has not caused pain to me, he's actually distancing his own personal interests from the case. Paul does this again down in verse 10 when he says, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything. He doesn't mean he isn't sure if there's an offense to forgive. Rather, that's a rhetorical way to say that my interests are not what's important here. Paul's saying the main issue here is not any offense this offender has caused to me personally. The issue is the damage he was doing to you as the church. 
This is part and parcel of the way Paul speaks throughout the whole letter. Paul's concern is not for his reputation. Paul's concern is not for Paul. It's for Jesus. It's for the Corinthians' relationship with Jesus. It's their health as a local church. And so Paul's problem with the offender was not ultimately whether whatever personal attacks they raised against Paul, whatever things they said, whatever lies they told. It was how they were causing dissension and leading the church astray. So that's, that's the inciting incident in its essence. This is the situation Paul's addressing. There was someone who had harmed the Corinthian church. Now, how does Paul want them to respond? How does Paul want the Corinthians to respond? Well, before we get into the response, we do have to consider some grounding. We have to consider some context that Paul gives that further illuminates the situation as it stands with this particular offender. Paul starts with these grounds in verse 6. He says, for such a one, and he, he's talking, it might sound like it's a hypothetical, but he's talking about a specific case. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Paul is about to call them to respond to the offender, and one of the reasons he asks them to respond to the offender the way that he does is this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, this statement assumes a couple things. Number one, it assumes that there was a punishment, a punishment by the majority that was meted out to this offender. So what's Paul talking about? What was the punishment? Well, actually, this, this word that we translate punishment is not common in the Bible. It's not, it's not uh, a Bible word. In fact, in the whole Greek New Testament, this is the only time this word occurs. But we know from outside the Bible that this is a legal word. It's a, a judicial word sometimes even economic, like economic sanctions, removing privileges. You know, one word we might use to capture the, the sense in English is official. There was something official, formal about the punishment here. This is something formal done by the church. That's why Paul also adds the phrase, by the majority. I mean, that could mean that not everyone voted the same way. Maybe it, it wasn't a unanimous vote, but Paul also could just be adding that to keep giving that picture of this was a, a formal process. There was a vote. This was done by the majority. The point is the punishment was what we call church discipline. This was an action taken by the church officially against this individual. Paul here is assuming an understanding of what that action was. Obviously, the Corinthians knew. They were the ones who did it. But we know from parallel passages that this involves revoking membership cutting off regular fellowship with an unrepentant, professing believer. Perhaps the key passage about church discipline being Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. We also see this worked out in a case that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 5. Earlier, Paul wrote to the same Corinthians. He said, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The person is to be formally removed from the church. 
So back then, in that situation, Paul called for removing someone, taking them outside, putting them outside the church. In fact, uh, some people think it's the same person in the 1 Corinthians passage as in our passage this morning. I don't actually think so, but it doesn't matter, as the parallel in 1 Corinthians is important regardless, because it gives us a, a look at the beginning of the process. And as we saw earlier, it tells us something important about the intent of the process. We know when a professing believer, a member of the church, engages in serious, unrepentant sin, the final step of the church's response to that sin, should they not repent, is to remove them from membership, to officially say you are not a part of this church. We cannot in good conscience affirm our confidence in your salvation. You are giving evidence to make it seem like you might not really be a believer, You are giving us pause to wonder whether or not you really are in Christ. Paul says in that same passage in 1 Corinthians, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord of Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Paul calls church discipline a handing over to Satan, putting this person outside the domain of the church. So an important piece of context for what Paul exhorts in our passage this morning is understanding that the punishment by the majority that he's referring to is an official act of church discipline, removing someone from the church. The person he's talking about in our passage this morning has been removed from the church. And secondly, we need to understand what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 6 of our passage that the punishment is enough. Again, regardless of whether or not it's the same individual in question, the parallel in 1 Corinthians is helpful because there Paul gives an explicit statement about the intent of all church discipline. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is the man's salvation. The goal is for the one under discipline to recognize the severity of their sin, to be drawn to repentance, to have their eyes open, to be woken up. In another place, Paul uses similar language about handing someone over to Satan. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, that they may learn. The point is hoped for reformation. The aim of church discipline is at least one of the aims. One is purity, as we heard. But it's also the purity of the church, the witness of the church. But it's also repentance. One of the aims of church discipline is for the repentance of the one under discipline. And so when Paul says in our passage that the punishment is enough or sufficient or competent to the task, he's not saying that there's, there's like a, a, a time, right? Like, oh, enough time has passed or a proper amount of punishment has been administered. He's saying It's had its intended effect. In other words, the offender repented. It's it's only enough if the offender would no longer be a mar on the witness of the church and if they had, in fact, repented. The offender did. He recognized his wrong. He has acknowledged his sins. He has come to agree with the church. He has come to agree with the word of God concerning his sin and his conduct. And that's important. The response that Paul calls for the Corinthians towards this offender assumes church discipline, assumes that they've been removed from the church, and it assumes the discipline worked, and the offender has repented. So what does Paul say to that? 
How do you respond to someone who has sinned so grievously and unrepentantly for a time that they had to be removed from the church? They had to be kicked out, but who has now repented and acknowledged their sin before the Lord. Paul repeats his desired response multiple times. He emphasizes it in a couple ways, but let's start with the first direct statement. Right there in verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Forgive and comfort the offender. Forgive him. Paul repeats that word three more times in this passage. And this word that Paul uses to say forgive has a, a particular emphasis. And what does it mean to forgive? Well, one of the, one of the things uh, uh, forgive conveys in English is, is revealed when we describe forgiveness as letting go, right? You let go of something. You let go of your anger. You let go of a, uh, an offense. You don't keep a record, right? Forgiveness is to stop feeling anger or resentment, to stop treating someone in light of anger and resentment. And there is, there's a, a word in Greek that is regularly translated as forgive that has a similar emphasis, this idea of per- permitting, letting go, not, not holding on to something. But here Paul uses a different word. He uses a word that comes from the same root as one of the most important words in the Bible, the same word we translate as grace. Here it's a verb, to show grace, to give grace. That's what Paul's asking. You give grace. The idea here is not, not just letting go, or at least the emphasis. The emphasis is not just letting go, not, not holding on to something, but giving Not just seeking to treat hostile, but to give, to give kindness, to give goodness, to give affection, giving someone what they do not deserve, gifting them something. This is the same word, the same verb that Paul often uses specifically to describe the act of God showing grace to his people salvifically. This is what God does when he saves, such as in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Same word. And in 1 Corinthians, now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In Galatians 3, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham by a promise. Or Philippians, for it has been granted, it has been graciously given to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. And so it's this same word for graciously giving, for showing grace, for giving grace that Paul uses to convey the idea of forgiveness in our passage and in other passages like Colossians where he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. In Colossians 3, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, give grace to each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, give grace. Giving grace to each other as the Lord has given grace to you. Same thing in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, giving grace as God in Christ forgave you, as he gave grace to you in Christ. The point is the emphasis here is not just on letting something go. That's certainly one of the ways that the Bible talks about forgiveness. But the point is the emphasis is on the positive side of forgiveness. The giving of something that the person does not deserve. Just like in English, we can speak of forgiveness as letting go or giving grace to someone. Actually, we speak of that in English because of the Bible. 
And we might not actually be thinking about the different dimensions of forgiveness when we choose to talk in one way or the other. But Paul is definitely intentional in speaking of forgiveness as giving grace when he does. I mean, notice in just a couple of the parallels that I just read, how Paul parallels the grace he calls his readers to give with the grace that God has given them in Christ. You give grace because you have been given grace. You forgive because you have been forgiven. Paul calls Christians to show grace on the basis of the grace they have been shown in Jesus. This word for forgive in verse 7 of our text is meant to immediately call to mind everything wonderful and kind that God showers on sinful, undeserving people through the cross of Christ. Just like Jesus forgave you, just like Jesus gave you, he gave to you when you didn't deserve it. He gave you love and kindness. He gifted you eternal life and comfort in this world. You give that to someone who doesn't deserve it. And note that Paul says forgive and comfort and comfort, which should be ding, ding, ding. That's, that's a key word that takes us right back to chapter 1, and Paul repeated it so often. You remember God comforted Paul so that Paul could comfort the Corinthians with the comfort with which he had been comforted by God. Right? Paul said it so many times, the words started to sound funny. I mean, we can't re-preach the whole first two sermons, but remember, just in summary, that the, the unassailable comfort that Paul had been given from, by God, that, that God gave to Paul, was the reality of eternal life, the hope of resurrection, the defeat of death that God gave to Paul through Jesus, through the gospel. That hope comforted Paul and strengthened him while he, when he felt like he could not go on, when he felt like he was dead, when he saw no way out. Paul wanted to always be giving that same comfort, the unassailable comfort to the Corinthians, to all Christians, that regardless of how any particular circumstance works out, if you are in Christ, you too can be afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise you also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. So when Paul says forgive, show grace, give grace, and comfort the offender, he doesn't just mean vaguely like, oh, you know, cheer them up. Those are are loaded words Paul's using. You take the same comfort that comes from the grace of God given to you, the hope of eternal life, and you strengthen and encourage that repentant offender. You fill his thoughts and hearts with songs of deliverance, visions of heavenly glory, and the hope of an eternal inheritance, the prospect of unbroken fellowship and joy with God the Father. You make it clear because the offender with unveiled face is now beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You help that repentant offender behold the glory of the Lord. That's what Paul wants them to do. Show grace, comfort with the gospel. Now, how do they do that? Well, one of the ways, one of the ways, maybe the first step, is to restore them to full membership, restore fellowship. Paul says in verse 8, I beg you, so I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him. This is the same thing, right? You, you see it, it's parallel. This is the same response as forgiving and comforting, but it's, he's using different words. He's describing it differently. He's, Paul says the forgiving and comforting is reaffirming your love. 
Or you can even think reaffirming your love is one of the ways that you give grace and comfort. For again, th- this word for affirm is another uh, rare and not really a normal biblical word. It's a very official word. It's used for making or establishing covenants, agreements. It's, you know, it's like ratify or, or validate. There's formality to it. In fact, the only other time this word occurs in the Bible is when Paul talks about ratifying human covenants in Galatians. The point here is, again, there is a formality to the language that Paul is using. Once again, Paul has in mind, the, uh, in view, the official actions of the church as a corporate entity. To reaffirm your love doesn't just mean say I love you or, or even doing acts of kindness, but it means welcome him back into the church. Restore him to membership. Take an official act as a body. To ratify their love, to reaffirm their covenant of love with him would be to restore all the privileges and blessings. Make it so it is as now as if he had never left. Bring him back into the fold under the domain and official authority of the church, fully within the community and the life of the church. Treat him officially as a body as though his sins were as far from him as the east is from the west. No longer allow his sins to have any bearing on his standing in the life of the church. Let him back in. That's the first step to forgiving and comforting, to giving grace of the gospel and to giving uh, the comfort of the gospel. Bring him back in to the church. Bring him back into the life of the church, officially, formally. And Paul tells us that this is critically important. Look at verse 9. He says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. This, referring to their, their, their welcoming the offender back into church membership. Paul says this is why he wrote which could mean either why he wrote the previous severe letter calling for the discipline or why he's writing now. But either way, the point is the discipline's ultimate goal was the restoration of the offender, and that motivated all of Paul's interactions with the Corinthians. It's such an important point that Paul can say, this is the whole reason I write to you. It's for this, this moment. Notice how Paul describes their forgiving, comforting, reaffirming love with being obedient in everything. So if you do this, this is being obedient in everything. I mean, Paul says, you, you forgiving, you comforting, you welcoming the offender back to, into membership, I call being obedient in everything. That's strong language. To be obedient in everything, right? He, he doesn't just mean everything I asked you to do, but obedient to the gospel in a way that reflects all of it. There's a totality to this obedience, right? He wants to know whether or not they fully grasp the gospel, whether they fully understand the message of Christ. To have this final step in a case of church discipline, to have forgiveness and restoration and gospel comfort for a repentant sinner, even and especially a repentant spectacular sinner, is critical to your own personal apprehension of the gospel, such that if you get this, if you get this last piece, you can call that obedient in everything. Right? It doesn't mean that the Corinthians are sinlessly perfect. It doesn't mean, like, this is the last thing you have to do, and then you're perfect here on earth. It's not talking about that, but it means understanding the whole gospel. Not exhaustively, right? Never exhaustively, but holistically. Getting the whole, the big picture. Their obedience would have a completeness to it, even if all obedience is never perfectly sinless in this life. So Paul wants the Corinthians to give grace and comfort to the repentant offender, And this starts with, or is represented preeminently by welcoming them back into the church, 
Critically important. It's why Paul wrote, you need to do this. And then Paul elaborates on this. He, he, he gives reason why this is critically important. He gives two, at least two, stated purposes for why he urges this forgiveness. The first one we find in the back half of verse 7. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, or lest, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This, this is a purpose statement, meaning you do this. You forgive and you comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul has pastoral concern for the individual in question, the individual who had slandered him, who had had torn him down. Paul's concerned for him as an individual. He doesn't want him overwhelmed. In fact, the word Paul uses there is picturesque. It it means it's literally swallowed. He doesn't want his sorrow to swallow the offender whole. The only other time Paul uses that word is not too much later in 2 Corinthians. And again, the link is certainly intentional. When Paul finds himself talking about the resurrection and the life to come, he says, For while we are still in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, not that we would be free from our bodies, but that we would be further clothed, we'd get a better body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, swallowed by life. Paul doesn't want the offender swallowed by sorrow. He wants them swallowed by life which he will be when Jesus fully clothes all his people in the resurrection bodies. So Paul says, encourage him to that hope. Paul has a pastoral concern for this individual who had opposed him, who had sinned against him. He had sinned against Paul. So surely part of the purpose of restoration in church discipline is for the individual's immediate benefit. Why do we restore someone in church, after church discipline when they repent? For them, for their sake. Their ongoing endurance in this life until they are finally swallowed up by eternal life. Forgive the offender for his sake, for the sake of his sorrow and his soul. And then the second purpose we find in verses 10 through 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Once again, Paul distances his personal interests and makes it clear that anything that he has forgiven personally has been, as he says at the end of verse 10, for your sake, for your sake, Corinthians, in the presence of Christ. Let's think about those two phrases for a second. We'll actually take them in reverse order. What does it mean when Paul says he forgives in the presence of Christ? That's a very solemn image to to forgive in the very presence of Christ, standing before the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is sitting in heaven, there Paul forgives the offender. At the very least, this conveys that Paul's forgiveness is definitive. It's sure, for it is done in the presence of the ultimate witness, in the ultimate courtroom. It also probably conveys that this forgiveness is fully in accordance with Christ's own desires, right? Paul forgives in the presence of Christ means that Paul is acting in accord with what Jesus wants in this situation because Paul is able to perform that forgiveness in Jesus' presence. Jesus doesn't veto it. It's definitive. It's in accordance with Christ's desires. And so in verse 10, Paul offers a definitive forgiveness to the offender, sanctioned by the Lord himself, And he does this, he says, for your sake, 
for, for you, the Corinthian church. I forgive this person in the presence of Christ for you. Not, not for him. He does for him. Like he, he mentioned that, right? It's for him. But it's also for you. It's for you. For the community. For the corporate whole. I've done this for the good of the church. I have given grace in order to model and encourage you to give grace. My grace giving is yet another type of my ministry, Paul says. It's just like when Paul said he was comforted so that he could comfort. He gives grace so that the Corinthians can give grace. He does it for them to model for them, to help them forgive. Their forgiveness for the offender is not just for the offender's good. It's for their own good. Paul's forgiveness for the offender was not just for the offender's good. It was for their good. This is for your sake. It's so important for them to forgive that Paul makes such a strong statement about having forgiven in the presence of Christ. He does that for you so that you'll forgive. It's so important that you forgive. This is for you too. So how does Paul say it's for their own good? In, in what way is it for their own good if they give grace to the offender? How does that help them? How does that serve them? Paul makes it clear in the final purpose clause in verse 11. My forgiveness is for your sake so that you will forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is for the purpose of not being outwitted by Satan, says the ESV. Uh, in other words, to, to do the opposite, to fail to forgive. If, if you fail, if in this situation instead you fail, you don't offer forgiveness, you don't give the comfort of the gospel to this repentant offender, then that's being outwitted by Satan. Satan has successfully outwitted you, or uh, many other translations say taken advantage of by Satan. Satan will have taken advantage of you. We do not want to be taken advantage of Satan by Satan. And I, I, that probably gets at the sense better. This, this word here has an economic flavor. It, it's, it's related to the idea of greed. It, mean, it, it means to take something that isn't yours. To, 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 to take advantage in the sense of defrauding something, someone of something that belongs to them. Take something that wasn't rightfully yours. It belonged to them and you, you took it. You stole it, for whatever it means. It, Paul uses, in fact, Paul's the only one who uses this word, right? He's cheating someone out of something. He uses it three other times later in the book, each time referring to not taking money from the Corinthians. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. We haven't taken anything wrongfully. He says later in chapter 12, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother, a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Like, no, we, we, we didn't take anything that was yours, Paul emphasizes. He also uses the word in 1 Thessalonians, the only other time in the Bible, when he's warning about committing adultery. He says, see to it that no one transgresses and wrongs or takes advantage of his brother in this matter. In other words, cheat his brother by taking his wife, taking something that's not his. The idea is if the Corinthian church does not forgive the offender... If they do not give grace, if they do not give gospel comfort, then Satan will have cheated them out of something that is rightfully theirs. Now, what could this be? What is Satan cheating them out of? The most obvious answer is that he will have cheated them out of the offender himself. He will have stolen a member. He will have cheated them out of one of their body parts. They will lose the fellowship and blessings they were supposed to have in communion with that believer. They will lose the joy and comfort that God intends for that member to contribute. 
God saves us, unites us with each other, gives each of us a role in the church universal and in our local church. You'll lose it. You'll lose his powerful witness. You'll lose his ability to so poignantly testify to the grace of Christ. You'll lose the comfort he'll be able to offer you when you next sin. Don't let Satan take him from you. He's yours. He belongs to you. God gave him to you. Don't let Satan cheat you out of your blessing. Paul says at the end of verse 11, we are not ignorant of his designs. We know how Satan likes to operate. Scripture tells us. It tells us about Satan. We know him. Stealing a member that is rightfully ours is exactly what Satan likes to do. And and he likes to twist and corrupt and lie. Satan would love to twist something good and necessary, church discipline, and turn it into a loss for the church with just a few few subtle lies. That sin is, is too much to be forgiven by Christ. That sin is certainly too much to ever be admitted back into the church. Maybe he can get into heaven, but not back into the church. For the sake of righteousness and purity, you need to keep the offender outside the bounds of your fellowship, even after he's repented. You need to keep him outside of the community. Well, you need to at least hold him at at arm's length. It's a wisdom thing. Satan would love to abuse the goods of church discipline, concern for righteousness, care for the purity of the church, and then twist them into poisoning against grace and salvation. He would love to weaken the church by taking from them a member rightfully theirs. Satan would love to have one less person praying for you. He would love to have one less person helping you to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Satan would love to have one less person rejoicing at your happiness and bearing your burdens and sorrows with tenderness and sympathy. Satan would love one less person encouraging you toward the eternal hope to which you have been called. Satan would love to have one less person working together with you for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry here in this church. Paul says, forgive this offender so that Satan doesn't cheat the church. Let's close with some direct applications to our church and our life together. The first is a corporate application, and it's the most obvious one from this passage for how we operate together as a church. We need to practice church discipline, and we need to understand its goal. It is important to confront unrepentant, church-destroying sin in a professing believer. When someone makes a grave doctrinal error, or when they commit public sin that would mar the witness of the church, and when they refuse to agree with God about the reality of their sin, it is important for the church the final step of confronting them to remove them officially, formally, solemnly. Yes, yes, it is for the witness of the church, but it is also for the hope for restoration for the sinner. The goal is that being outside the church, they would see the error of their ways. We need to understand that, to think about church discipline in that way, to be filled with the hope that God would use their exclusion from the covenant community to draw them back, to humble them and convict them of their sin. We must both not be shy about practicing church discipline and we must always do it in a way that is prayerful, hopeful, longing towards the repentance and restoration of the one under discipline. It should never be a good riddance. We should be looking forward to the day when we welcome them back. 
The point is not to puff ourselves up in self-righteousness, to, to feel so great about our purity and how, how awesome we are as a church. We do not tolerate this unrighteousness. Look at that horrible person. Get rid of them. The point is to draw the sinner to the only source of righteousness any of us have, to point them back to true union through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, and to serve the first application, we need to cultivate hearts that apply the gospel to the worst sins. We need to really believe in the power and sufficiency of the grace of Christ. We, we need to believe it. Not, not just a little bit of gossip, not just white lies, adultery, tearing a church apart, murder. Jesus can save from these. So don't act like he can't by refusing the full hand of fellowship from those who have fallen into them in the past. Don't act like Jesus' death was only potent enough to cover the easy sins. We sang this morning, the power of the cross, oh, to stand forgiven at the cross. We can't sing that and not believe it. Jesus' death is not weak like us. The cross is not as weak as our feelings or as our personal range of forgiveness. Don't drag the cross down to your level. Be lifted up by the cross to its level. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? When you don't understand the value of something you own, you can easily be cheated out of it. When you don't understand the value of Christ and his death and its effective power for the forgiveness of sins, we will be quick to let Satan cheat us out of the blessings of fellowship in the church that Jesus promised to deliver to us through the cross, through the value of the cross. Jesus said, one, I mean, just one of the blessings. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's not prosperity gospel. That's in this life. He gives you the church now in this life. That's one of the benefits of the cross. Don't let Satan cheat you out of some of your family because you have devalued the cross of Christ. Give gospel grace. Give gospel comfort to all sins. We must cultivate an understanding of the gospel that sees it for how powerful it really is. Thirdly, if you are a sinner who needs to repent, who doesn't have any gospel comfort to give because you don't have any yourself, who doesn't have any grace to give because you haven't received any yourself. Now's the time. Confess your sins. Come and receive grace from God in Jesus. Experience kindness you don't deserve. Experience love poured freely and effectually apart from what you deserve. Receive the hope of eternal life, one for you, because Jesus has defeated death, because he has paid for his people's sins. So now if you're in him, they will not be held against you in the divine court. If you give yourself to Jesus, he will give you a comfort that this world cannot take away from you. 
a right standing with God and victory over death. Come, receive the grace, receive the comfort from Christ. And finally, though this passage most directly applies to formal church discipline, the principle is still valid on a smaller, more personal scale. Even though we don't currently have a case pending of someone needing to be restored from church discipline, we still often find ourselves as individuals in danger of being cheated by Satan in a similar way, parallel way. If someone has pained you, ultimately they have pained not just you, but the church by causing a rift in your relationship, a relationship that would otherwise make the church stronger. So please, as Paul says, I beg you, forgive and comfort When someone repents of the ways they have sinned against you, believe the gospel. Believe that you have been given grace in Christ and give that grace to them. And if their sin is small and not self-destructive, don't even wait for an apology or some acknowledgement. Just cover it in love. She gossiped about me at Bible study. He spoke critically of me after church. She was unfair at potluck. He was kind of conniving in that members meeting. She was too harsh at women's group. You know, he overstepped his bounds in that email. She was uncharitable during dinner. He was just not fair. He was not fair to me. Listen, so much of the sins that upset us so, that upset me, that upset me so, they're not even particularly spectacular. I'm preaching to myself. We're so easy to offend. I'm so easy to offend. I get offended by such insignificant things, and Satan knows that, right? He knows us. Jeremiah is so easy to offend. He cares about such insignificant things, so I'm going to steal from him. I'm going to steal a relationship from him. Are you going to let Satan steal from you? Are you going to let Satan steal a person from you, a friendship, a relationship that will strengthen you to live this life for Jesus? Are you going to let Satan steal fellowship from you because you were offended? Don't do that. Are you going to let Satan steal a friendship from you when we all know Jesus died and rose again? Listen, because of Jesus, we're all forgiven of our sins. None of us are going to stay dead. That's real. We're all going to live forever in eternity with unceasing joy and glory that we can't even comprehend now. And we're going to let Satan steal from us because we were offended by something someone said at potluck? Don't do that. Please, God is urging us through Paul's urging of the Corinthians, reaffirm your love for each other. Do it now. After service, is there someone Satan thinks he's successfully stolen from you? Because you haven't really applied the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ to that relationship, that situation, go now. Reaffirm your love for each other. Ratify your covenant commitment to each other. Even now, we stand in the presence of Christ, worshiping before his throne. Even now. So go, give grace as you have been given grace. Comfort each other with the comfort that we have been given in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the wonder of what you have given us in Jesus. We confess that it is often too small in our eyes, so make your son glorious to us. Help us to see him just a little bit for as glorious as he is and how wonderful and powerful and effective the cross is. And so open our hearts to extend that grace to others, to give that grace to others. Comfort us with the gospel and make us free and ready to comfort each other with the gospel. Build us up in love. Don't let Satan rob Grace Covenant Baptist Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.